Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. How's everyone doing? I hope we're staying safe. I talked a lot about this in the newsletter that went out yesterday. If you're not on the newsletter mailing list, go to heathrosella.com. You can read the newsletter there for free. You can sign up for free to have it in your inbox. But I talked a lot about this coronavirus, COVID-19. It is just out of control, you guys. It is everywhere. It is spreading like crazy. I don't think enough people stayed home at Thanksgiving. A lot of socializing and a lot of spread. 282,000 deaths in the U.S. as of recording this right now. That number is increasing by more than 2,000 every single day. I mean, in what, a week and a half, we're going to be over 300,000. That is insane. That is about six times the population of the city that I grew up in, in Ohio. Six of my hometowns in the span of a couple of months since March. It's scary. I hope everybody is taking the right precautions. I feel very nervous that not enough is being done to protect all of us. I feel like a lot of businesses are still open, businesses that were closed in March and April. I feel like a lot of states are not encouraging people to stay home. They're not incentivizing it in any way. Congress seems like they might be starting to finally act on some sort of relief bill, but it's been a long time since individuals and businesses have seen relief. It's tough. We're on our own right now, guys. We got to fend for ourselves. We got to look out for the people in our lives, our loved ones. And I think if you're not paying close enough attention, it's really important to seek out first-person testimony from people that know about this virus. I'm talking about people that lived with it. I'm talking about family members and friends of those who have died from it. I'm talking about doctors, nurses in the ICUs and ERs across the country that are seeing the effects of this every single shift and then going home to their families. This is not the time to be going out to the bars. This is not the time to be window shopping for Christmas. This is the time to be serious, to stay home. I got to tell you, for us, since March, we have been in that kind of cocoon mode. And it's amazing how easy it has been to adapt to. A lot of stores do really easy curbside pickup. I go to Target once or twice a week. And do curbside pickup there. They bring it right out to the car. They'll put it in your trunk. You don't even have to talk to the person. You can literally leave your windows rolled up. Home Depot, Lowe's, they do curbside pickup. And I've gotten lumber from that. And it's been fine. I mean, like big things. It's not just a box of screws. I mean, you can literally get two by fours or, you know, whatever you need delivered to your car from Home Depot and Lowe's. Whole Foods does curbside pickup. They do delivery. And look around for local businesses that you can support. Local bookstores are doing a lot of curbside pickup. Local restaurants obviously need help. But don't go in person. Get it to go. Have it delivered. It's just not worth the risk right now, guys. I don't know. That's my opinion. I don't mean to to preach too much, but it is getting more serious. Maria Hinojosa is my guest today. And we have a great talk about COVID-19. She survived it and her husband survived it back in March. And you'll hear from Maria what the effects of it were like for her and for her husband. And she's lost a lot of friends 
from this disease now too. And like me, she has a really kind of stark perspective on it. But that's not the only reason I had her on, of course. Like I, I actually met Maria many, many years ago. When I worked at this old house, we were drafted by PBS to do a special about the transition from analog to digital television that happened. This was back in, I think, 09, 08, something like that. And as part of that project, PBS wanted to have some of their other personalities on. At the time, Maria was working for PBS, and they said, ooh, we should pair Maria with Kevin and Norm. So she came out to our studio here in the Boston area and shot with us. And she's been somebody whose career I've been following for a long time. She's been the longtime host of Latino USA on NPR, radio show looking at Latino and Latina issues. She also hosts the In the Thick podcast, which is kind of a cool version of Meet the Press, she calls it. And she has worked at many of the major news and media organizations, NPR, PBS, CBS, CNN. But in 2010, Maria went out on her own and founded Futuro Media, which is her media company that now produces both her radio show and her podcasts. And they've got a whole bunch of cool things in production. She talks a little bit about some of them in the show today. Maria also has a really great new book out. It's called Once I Was You. It is a part memoir, which I really enjoyed just hearing about her life. She was born in Mexico, came over as a very young girl, was raised in Chicago, and it goes through a lot of her media career and the different places she worked, the different bosses she had, the things she brought with her and learned. But then it dives really deep into one of the biggest crises of the moment we're in right now, and that is the situation with immigration, and in particular, these detention camps. They're not just on the border. There's a good chance there's one in your state, and there are people being held there that are quote-unquote illegal, but that oftentimes are allowed to be here. There are people that have had green cards for 20 years, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement is going and rounding these people up. These are your neighbors. These are your friends. These are people that work in the restaurants and stores you go to. These are people that you know that ICE is going and rounding up and putting in camps, and terrible, terrible things are happening there. Maria goes into details about that in her book, and it is a tough read at times, but an important read, and we're going to talk a lot about that issue today because it is something that, sadly, the mainstream media does not focus enough on. And I hope this episode can be a wake-up call for those of us that aren't paying attention to these issues to go out and to get informed, to know what's happening right here in our country to fellow human beings. It's tragic. So we're going to talk about Maria's career in media. We're going to talk about what she's learned at the border. And we're going to talk about the future of the media business. But first, her experience dealing with COVID-19. All right, here it is. My interview with Maria Hinojosa. Uh, well, I want to ask, you know, generally sort of these past, whatever it's been, eight or nine months now, how has this quarantine period been for you? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the things that I have said more than once is that this quarantine has proven to us that we are stronger than we think, that we are 
we're capable of doing things that we could have never conceived, Mm -hmm. that we have learned a lot in a really difficult way. But you see, I'm a survivor of COVID. I got COVID in uh, mid-March. Oh, wow. And so So for me, yeah, really early on. And so for me, there's a lot of just like, oh my God, I can't believe I survived this and my husband survived it. And yet we have so many friends who have died. Yeah. You know, there's another thing, which is I, I'm living at home in our apartment with our two adult kids and my husband, and we will never have this kind of experience again. Right. Um, and so, sure, it's been tough I mean, it's for adults living together, but it's also we have really come to appreciate just how much we love each other and the fact that we actually can live together in a New York City apartment and and make it in through a core game. Yeah. There was this moment today, actually, I'm, I'm home with my two kids. They're seven and four. Actually, I got laid off uh, back in March at the beginning of this pandemic. And so this podcast has sort of been the creative outlet during this time. Uh, but in the meantime, I've also been kind of homeschooling my daughter. And I was just playing in the yard with them and just thinking, like, this is such a weird, precious gift that, like, you know, th- there's going to be a day when this is over and things are back to sort of the hustle and bustle that they were. But man, just like being in the yard with my two kids was just like, I just felt all sorts of gratitude today that, you know, I'm happy for. Right. And so I actually think the trick right now is if you can really base yourself in the gratitude part, Yeah. just like, wow, I'm so grateful. And those of us who can, we're lucky because there are just a lot of people who, you know, they're going through a very, very tough time. And asking them to kind of focus on gratitude when they are, you know, have been sacrificed. Um, recently, somebody wrote on Latino Rebels that essential workers are not as really essential, but rather they're they're your neighbors who you're prepared to sacrifice. And I yeah. was just like, oh my gosh! So we have to be, you know, ever more conscious of our sense of community, right? We really are tied together, and I think all of that is, you know, if there's a silver lining to this horror, that that's a part of it. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I want to back up and just ask you about your experience with COVID. I mean, in, in March, we we barely knew, I feel like here in the U.S., sort of what it was or, or how to deal with it, you know, as a healthcare system. Like, what did it look like for you, I guess? And, you know, how <laughs> what was your experience like surviving this disease? What it looked like was I didn't have any of the typical symptoms. And so I was like, well, I don't have any of the typical symptoms, but I never get sick. And I have not been this sick in a long time. And I did fly around to multiple cities right before the shutdown. And by now, I think at least one person had been sick in my office. So I was in a lot of denial, honestly. I I mean, that's what makes it really hard is when you're like, well, wait a second, I was in denial in March, but there's parts of the country that are still in denial. Little little by little, I would, you know, post on social media and then I'd hear from people and they'd be like, yeah, no, I've been sick too. And I'm like, well, did you go get the test? And they're like, are you kidding? Like, why would I walk outside and stand in the cold in a long line with other sick, sick people to get a test. So there were many of us who were sick and who had different kinds of symptoms, uh, but all sick at about the same time. And so it felt very lonely. Honestly, Mm. it felt very, very lonely. 
my case was quote unquote mild. It's like, you know what? It was like 30 days with a fever. Wow. Like with a mild fever, maybe so that it wasn't, you know, the highest it got for me was just over a hundred. So it was, but I'm a small person. So that really felt like a lot. And the body aches and pains were just voracious. And, um, I mean, I couldn't get out of bed. Um, and that was mild. I always was able to breathe. Yeah. So, and so was my husband, his symptoms ended up being completely digestive. So there are a lot of people who early on had it and we just didn't know what the entirety of the symptomology was. Like I said, for me, it was lonely. It was scary. There were a few people who had gone public. One of them is actually a friend of mine. She's an actress that a lot of people know. Her name is Debbie Mazar. And um, she got in touch with me immediately. The second I kind of said I might be getting sick and she was like, I just had it. I had the test. I did have it. I'm going to walk you through. I'm going to help you know what to expect. And so that is what helped me. And then I ended up doing that for others who got sick after me. Yeah. What is your sort of outlook, I guess, or maybe advice to people around the country that, as you say, are sort of still, you know, eight, nine months in, still in denial about this or or have the feeling that, you know what, like, I'm healthy, I can beat this. Like, having lived through it, what, what do you say to those people? It makes me very sad that wearing a mask has become political. Um, and the way that I help people to understand is that you don't wear the mask for you. You wear the mask out of a sign of respect for other people. Yeah. So that's like a big mind shift because that's like, okay, well, I'm not going to think about me. It's not about me. I'm tired of wearing masks. I'm sick of it. I can't stand it. I don't believe it. Okay. I'm still going to wear a mask because I'm going to show you strangers out there, people that I respect you. I, (sighs) I, I really don't even know what to say when people like I'm still in quarantine. Yeah. I have been to one restaurant outdoors yeah one time right you know because it was like oh my god it was august and my daughter and i were like okay we're gonna that's it i i did a social gathering in the park with people who i am basically in a bubble with they're my exercise team that we work out every morning together that's it like there's no social gatherings uh only you know my nephew came over once recently and he lives in new york so we took six months to see each other so i'm basically still in quarantine and it does honestly just freak me out when uh, i'm seeing people who are like no nothing's going on now having said that most of the places where i am that's not the attitude right i'm in new york city i'm in my community i'm mostly i mean i rarely leave harlem i've left harlem a dozen times to another part of the city at a max. Yeah. Maybe not even a dozen, maybe more like 10. So I I don't, you know, we did have an experience. We have a little cottage in Connecticut and we did go into a liquor store because now I drink half of a shot of tequila every night to battle cholesterol. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> it's very good for battling cholesterol. I hadn't heard and that, but okay. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So um, we went to a liquor store. I don't usually go to liquor stores. No. Um, and in this liquor store, no one was wearing a mask. Oh, wow. My daughter immediately saw it. She got very upset. Right now, post Thanksgiving, I'm just very worried. Yeah. Because in the last 
month, I've had more people infected with COVID in my New York City community than at the height of COVID in April and May. Wow. And that's yes. terrifying because you guys went through it as a city. I mean, just like I feel like New York has sort of been, you know, you guys were, were obviously behind in the spring, but sort of learned your lessons, I thought, and, you know, had come out the other side smarter. Yeah, that's why. And, and these are all smart people. So what's going wrong? Yeah. Everybody who got infected is smart. And it's just that that one time when you're like, well, I'm just going to go to the bar just once and just once. Or we're just going to have that family gathering just this once. Or there's a funeral and it's raining, so we have to have the meal inside. Right. That was it. Yeah. Five people got infected from somebody who was asymptomatic. So that's why it's like, you know, you just shouldn't do it. Yeah. Just don't do it. And if you're going to be with a few people indoors, you've got to have a unidirectional fan going that is blowing across everybody and right out so that nobody's nobody is talking to each other and um, getting their in their faces uh, without something blowing all of that air out. Yeah. No. And, and it's it's incredible, I guess, too, that we're this far in. And there's still questions about that, about the masks, about the ventilation, about social gatherings, just that 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 isn't all known yet. And, you know, I, I guess it leads to a broader point, too, that as I was reading your book, I was sort of struck as as you're talking about sort of the news that's consumed in the Latino community and how that's separate from the mainstream media, perhaps, that it's not necessarily the stories that, you know, are, are played on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever. And I'm certainly aware of the ideological bubbles that we have, you know, Fox and MSNBC, but realizing that, you know, based on the community that you belong to, you may also be consuming very different news. And I guess, you know, it, it sort of plays into this whole COVID thing, perhaps, of just like, we all have completely different media diets now. And I wonder sort of how you, as as a journalist and, and a media professional, sort of confront that and, and deal with that. Well, usually the way I would confront it and deal with it is by being a journalist on the streets. Yeah. Like traveling around the country, talking to everyone who I meet. I mean, literally everyone, every single cab driver, Lyft driver I'm speaking to, oftentimes the people who are cleaning the hotels where I would be staying, people in the airport. I mean, not everybody in the airport. Like I try not to because that's, <laughs> you know, but in any other situation, that's what I would be doing. I mean, I had this, I, I used to say this, tell this story in speeches when I would be out and about giving speeches. So I guess the big message is, is that it's really hard to combat this when you are in quarantine, yeah. because the way you combat it is by having conversations, is by actually, yeah, thoughtful and patient listening. So the story goes that I was in Omaha, Nebraska, one of my favorite places, by the way, and I got in a lift or a taxi, whatever, and the driver was a white guy in his mid-50s, and I immediately asked him, so who'd you vote for? Uh, I mean, I usually say, look, I'm going to ask you a personal question. <laughs> uh, and then I asked, who'd you vote for? And he said Trump. And I said, why? And he said, well, because, you know, he's really got to build that wall. I mean, there's all those drug dealers and gangbangers and rapists coming over. And I said, hmm. I said, but you live in Omaha. There's a huge Latino, Latina population here. Yeah. So where, where are, do you see all the gangbangers and drug dealers and rapists? 
And he said, uh, well, no, actually, their, their communities are really nice and tidy and they, yeah, no. And, and then he said, oh, you, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to get me. You're, you're trying to catch me. And something. I said, no, sir. No, no, no. And he said, well, he said, well, I also like Trump because of the Muslim ban. And he said, because, you know, we've got to stop the terrorists. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you live in Omaha, Nebraska, sir. So there is a large Muslim population here, right? And he was like, as a matter of fact, my neighbor is Muslim, such a nice guy. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, and, 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 and then he said, wow, um, what's going on? And I said, well, what, what media do you consume? And interestingly, he said, I watch Fox and MSNBC, which I thought was interesting. Huh. And then he said, but you know what? Maybe what you're telling me is that I need to stop listening to what they're saying and I need to open my eyes a little bit more. And I said, thank you. That's all. Yeah. Look at actually what's happening around you. So that is one way to combat it. I mean, it's very challenging as a journalist when you're sitting next to somebody, for example, in the backseat of a car and you're trying to have a conversation and then you say, they ask you, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a journalist. Oh, well, you, you just have a whole other set of facts. I can't even, you know, like, I don't even, where's your data? I don't believe your data. Hmm. So there is a point where it's like, you just can't have that conversation. But most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, even people who are very conservative, you know, very big Trump supporters, you can still have a conversation with them. And, and that's where I bring in a lot of the humanity, which I think comes through in Once I Was You. Right. Like that is one of the ways that I operate as a journalist and as a person living in this country. Well, and I feel like that kind of retail politics approach to it of, you know, going up person by person and, and trying to have these discussions. It is helpful because if you look at the data, anywhere from 60 to 90 percent, depending on the issue, People generally seem to be in agreement about a lot of big things in this country, whether it's gun control, abortion, immigration. Like, we're not as divided as, as is often portrayed, I guess, in the media. And I, I think it's important for people to, to sort of open their eyes to that. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're doing one person at a time. And I wonder just how do you, how do you grow that beyond just those, those person-to-person interactions? Is there, is there bigger systemic change that can be made to, to open people's eyes? Well, that's... That leads me to the journalism, right? So that is my role. Yeah. That is what I do. I, I do the journalism. I do the national journalism, attempting to have a national impact, impact the national conversation. So that is my job. That is what I'm committed to doing. But, you know, I, I don't think that the small D democracy doesn't work. I mean, it's oftentimes what's going to happen, it's going to happen around the dinner table. Uh, when somebody has like that, like that cab driver ended up just like, wow, and similar cab driver in Chicago, big Trump supporter, you know, ended up hugging me at the end. Hmm. He was like, well, you know, I just really want to thank you uh, for listening to me. And, you know, it was it was actually like a year ago. Was it a year? And he said, um, may Jesus be with you in this time. And I was like, sir, I'm sorry to say this to you. I mean it with no disrespect, but I, I hope you understand that the policies that Donald Trump has created right now in terms of immigrants and refugees would mean that Jesus Christ would be sleeping on the sidewalk in Matamoros, Mexico right now. Mm. He would not be allowed in, right? nor would Mary, nor Joseph. Like they, no, not coming. And that moment he just said, oh my God, I, I need to hug you. And I was like, okay. So I don't dismiss 
that small d democracy in my view but yeah systemically oh my gosh it's changing the media it's changing the narrative that the mainstream media which by the way is overwhelmingly like almost all owned by white men who are straight and of privilege right by the way this does not mean that they're terrible people it just means that they have grown up with a kind of privilege that then they consume the media but that same media has been busy creating for example an anti-immigrant narrative that didn't start with donald trump that existed under barack obama who deported more people from the interior of the united states than any other person any other president george w bush but you know it was signed into law by president bill clinton some of these restrictive laws so there's a lot of blame to go around. And so the politics of it has to be very personal, very non-judgmental, but also based in history. And again, that's where Once I Was You, like for me, the book is not just um, this memoir, but it's really a primer. Right. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's one way of changing, right, is getting the information out there. Yeah. Well, and that that shift was interesting to me because I felt like sort of the first, I don't know, 150 pages or so was more in the memoir category. And then all of a sudden, you know, as I got to sort of the middle third of it, it it turned very heavy into looking at the issues of around immigration. And again, sort of eye opening for me. And, and as you just said, sort of realizing that this is a bipartisan issue, that it's been happening under Republican and Democratic presidents for many, many years at this point. And, you know, I, I feel like one of the most eye-opening things was just talking about your different visits to detention camps. And, you know, at one point you had talked about being nervous about using the word concentration camps, at least on air. You didn't want to present them as that as a journalist, but, you know, really hinting that that was sort of what you were observing. And that was frightening to me. I mean, I, I'm aware, I guess, you know, sort of the headline of, you know, their, their families being separated and kids in cages. But, realizing just how long this has been going on and that these are people oftentimes, I mean, you say in the book, people with green cards, people that had a DUI 20 years ago that are getting picked up by ICE. Like, I don't know. Talk to me, I guess, just about the experience of, of meeting people in these detention camps and walking through them because it, it was really eye-opening for me. So I guess the reason why I'm pausing at your question is I'm like, wow, that was like, it was 10 years ago. Wow. Like the first detention, modern detention facility, because the first one that I visited is in 1986 in Harlingen, Texas. And at that point, they were referred to as El Corralón, which means the corral, because it was basically like corralling cattle. That's right. how they had people. Now you move to 2010 and it has become a much more sophisticated operation. From the outside, it looks sophisticated, modern. But the ethos is that these people are illegal people. That is how they are referred to. Are, people call them illegals. Yeah. And therefore, the thing is, well, what, what are you complaining about that you're hungry? <laughs> you should be lucky you get any meal here. You're illegal. That kind of an ethos. Or, you know, this frightening moment that, um, you know, when they, when they were in the rush to build up these detention camps, they were using these tents, these Kevlar tents. These are like, is it Kevlar? I don't know. It's like they look like circus tents. They're like that storage, kind of white, like tarp yeah, almost material. Exactly, sure, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so nobody is supposed to be sleeping in those. That's right. to store grain. And so when they opened this place up in Texas, in Raymondville, Texas, 
it was freezing in the middle of nowhere on the border, um, in the middle of the desert at night. And the women, there was no heat. And so they had to huddle together to stay warm in the United States of America in the year 2010. Well, no, that was the year 2005. You know, at that point, it was like just massive amounts of detaining people. I heard stories about people being rounded up like cattle inside these detention camps, Uh, men and women being sexually assaulted, raped uh, outside of the view of cameras, men who would get the literally the shit kicked out of them because they had spoken back, for example, uh, to somebody. And then they were just deported. So you're deporting the evidence of the crime that existed. People being fed food that was expired in order to save money because they're run by private prison companies. And so they just shave wherever they can. People being served oatmeal with live maggots in it. You know, that was a decade ago. The sophistication of the horror is now documentation of women's uteruses being taken from them. Their babies being ripped out of their arms. Um, Consistent rape across the board. And so we have to understand, it makes me very uncomfortable to say this, and I do not have proof, but understand what I'm about to say. If you have had sexual abuse happening in detention facilities for a decade, let's say, without it stopping in any way, shape, or form, and these are men and women. Think about what's happening in detention facilities that are holding children hmm. and toddlers and infants. Yeah. And I'm saying that because I'm. I, it is a horror. It is happening today. And movies will be made soon um, that document this horror in the United States of America. I'm just hoping that people realize that right now they should be doing something to make this stop. Yeah. Well, and that was something else that that struck me, too, was looking at the history of of how DACA passed and and the DREAM Act. And, you know, it was something that I had sort of forgotten, I guess, and maybe hadn't been paying attention to, you know, as it was going through the process 10 years ago or so. But ultimately, it was a group of of activists. uh, That's not even the right word, but people that chose to to protest and went to Barack Obama's uh, reelection headquarters and staged a sit in. And it's what caused him to sign this executive order within 10 days. And and just sort of realizing, I guess, that just talking about the issues isn't enough. At some point, there needs to be some form of action. And that when action is taken, whether it's protesting, whether it's sitting in, you know, whatever it looks like, that's really the only way that things are going to change. You know, just you and I having a conversation about this, it's important. It, it brings attention to the issue. But at a certain point, you know, people need to be willing to stand up and, and say, no, this isn't right. We can't do this anymore. And so what's going to happen now in our country is going to be really fascinating. Yeah. Because what we are living through is truly another late 1960s moment. It's another 1968 sure. moment. Yeah. And so what will happen will be determined precisely by people who take part in democracy. Will they accept what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris say or do, or will they start putting pressure on? And I think that that's, you know, that is the lesson I think of the Obama administration is that everybody was just like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And it, and it was and is. 
But everybody just kind of was like, oh, my God, whew, it's so we're so glad that George W. Bush is gone because people forget about what that was like. Right. And they're like, oh, my God, this shoo, we can just kind of relax. Well, I don't know if that's going to be the same case right now with uh, the Biden administration. And so that pressure that took four years for activists to get Obama, you know, to do something on immigration, I'm not so sure it's going to take four years. Yeah. Um, it may take more like four months. Right. Um, if he doesn't start moving. And and the, my critique about this is that Joe Biden has been running for president for a couple of decades now in his head, sure. whether or not officially. But, you know, he's had ample opportunity to be thinking about how he's going to resolve one of the greatest human rights challenges that this country is facing now, which some people like to label as an immigration problem. It's not. At this point, it's an international human rights crisis of epic proportions involving refugees and vulnerable men, women, and children who are being abused by the American government for no other reason, essentially, than that they were not born in this country. Right. And and so we all need to take pause. Well, and, and I, I feel like that is such an important piece of this, too, that most of our ancestors at this point as Americans came from somewhere else. Right. And people, unless you were enslaved and brought here in chains, you're absolutely, you know, you're right. Or if you can draw back your, you know, your ancestral roots to indigenous people, you're right. You know, everybody else and people forget. And this is one of the great, I loved writing this in once I was you, which was, can we just correct the history that uh, the first encampment on this land of people not born here, not indigenous, was St. Augustine of the Spaniards. First, first language spoken here, apart from indigenous languages, Spanish. And then the second place was Santa Fe. Then Plymouth Rock. Right. Then Jamestown. Yeah. So, you know, and that's just truth. And we should be dealing in the truth. Yeah. Well, and that's such a tough thing, I I think, too, for people to... uh to confront and, and re-examine some of the things that they had been taught. You know, I, I feel like I, I grew up in Ohio and, and went to public school and it's taken me a long time to sort of, you know, sometimes I'll just, I'll have a flashback and be like, Oh, my eighth grade uh, history teacher <laughs> taught us that the civil war was not about slavery. It was about States rights. And wow, whoa, that's a, that's whoa. a really racist talking point. And like, wow. just forgetting about that. And then sort of being like, Oh, like that's, you know, this was the person that was teaching me this stuff. And, you know, if I was learning that, then I'm sure, you know, multiply that across the country. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we were in a working class suburb of Cleveland. It wasn't necessarily a super Mm -hmm. red territory either. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of relearning for us all to do. But I, I think it feels like that is sort of the moment that we're in right now is that this is the time to to reexamine all of those assumptions and, and myths. And, you know, it's happening with Christopher Columbus and, you know, with Thanksgiving just passing, people are reexamining that. And yeah, it just, all of that. And I know, yeah. Look. And I know, I know it's hard. I mean, I just came from Columbus circle. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, Hmm, Columbus circle is kind of like a thing in, in Manhattan. Like right. everybody, it's like, you know, well, you know, what are we going to do? Like there's a massive statue of Columbus that, you know, goes up several, what, a couple of hundred feet. I'm like, hmm. My response to that in particular is I'm like, well, I think we should build a statue that is just like 
the Christopher Columbus one, but that ends up actually towering over Christopher Columbus. Hmm. <laughs> and that is looking down on Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And that is actually questioning him and having that public dialogue. Because, you know, I, I, I understand. I don't want people freaking out. I don't want them thinking, oh, my God, everything is good. Because you have to understand trauma, too. Like, I, I get that. I, I get people feeling like, wait, you're moving my cheese too much. But all I'm saying, um, and this is actually at the end of Once I Was You, I was saying, but I'm, I'm just saying, look at it from the perspective of the other. Yeah. And from the perspective of, are you prepared to be a little uncomfortable? And, and can you handle being uncomfortable? Because a lot of us, in my case, a woman of color, Mexican immigrant, you know, I was uncomfortable a lot of the time. Yeah. And it didn't feel so good to have people telling me, well, you know, you can't write or, oh, that story idea that you want to do is just so ridiculous. Or, yeah, no, you know, your, your, uh, your writing sucks. Or I was like, well, I guess it's, it's more existential. It's kind of like everybody in this place is suffering together. Yeah. Let's just be a little bit more open and honest with each other and understand that nobody really wants to take anything from you at all. Yeah, there's room for all of us and, and all those yeah. points of view. Hey, I want to ask you about that, too. One of the stories that stood out in the book was having a white male editor when you were at NPR tell you that, that you had a Latino agenda to your reporting. And I wonder <laughs> just sort of that, finding that line, I guess, between expressing a point of view and, and you know, bringing your own background and expertise to a story and pushing an agenda. Like, I feel like that there's a fine line there and I feel like that can be misinterpreted a lot. I know I've, I've had that critique as well of, Oh, you're, you're being in a, you know, you're, you're pushing an agenda and like I've, I've struggled to navigate that, I guess. Yeah. But the thing was that he really like, there was no empirical data for him to say that. Right. And that's what I think was upsetting to me is because at that point in my career, I was, I was new. I I mean, if I wanted to, I could just go back and do the research, like from my first two years, three years on the air at NPR, how many stories did I do about Latinos and Latinas? It was not that many. In fact, because I was having to fight against not doing too many Latino and Latina stories and then being pigeonholed. So it's like you get it from both ends. And that's what was upsetting to me because I was like, bro, I'm actually not reporting that much about Latinos and Latinas. Like, if you think I have an agenda and I do a, you know, a story every six months, yo, so you're saying we should just, like, we should just do a story a year. That's what was upsetting to me was just like, it's baseless. Like, I wish you would have assigned me this many Latino stories so that you could actually say I have some kind of an agenda. But you're not letting me even get to that point of doing that many stories. Yeah. Well, but looking later too at your career and, you know, realizing, I guess, that having your perspective in these newsrooms and these news organizations was important and, and I think still is important because you're bringing a different point of view. As, as you said earlier, you know, it's a lot of white, straight, male, you know, wealthy, you, you name it, uh, people running these newsrooms. Diversity has become something that. You know, I feel like for a lot of media organizations, they almost treat it as like a scorecard or, you know, like we have to be able to demonstrate that we have so many whatever, whatever on staff and not realizing what an asset it is to just have different points of view and different perspectives on it. I wonder just sort of your your thoughts on, on diversity in news. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, if you're a journalist, 
this is not a political conversation. This yeah. is about doing the best the best professional work that we can do as journalists. You have to remember that not too long ago, in the modern era, right, the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 50s, that Ida B. Wells, the investigative African-American journalist, wanted to report on lynchings happening in the United States. And she was told basically by um, her white male colleagues, oh my God, Ida, a lynching is not news. A lynching happens all the time. It's mm. not news. And just like, wow, what have we as a society lost because white men of privilege have been running our newsrooms? Yeah. Again, many of them are my best friends, right? Love and adore them. But they have a a perspective. It's not like they own objectivity. This notion of like, well, I'm a white man. I'm objective. Rest of y'all. You you all got you got to deal with your you know but me I'm good and I'm like mm, you see that because that has been the modus operandi in the media for the forever sure right so I'm saying rethink the whole thing this whole notion of like mm, we want to share our media we're going to open it up to you we're going to diversify it's like you are looking at it in the wrong way it's not yours to own. And it's not yours, especially when we're talking about public media, yeah. to diversify. A, grow up and recognize what our profession is all about. Do not make this political. The fact that like my, the entirety of my career has been saying uh, more representation, it's better. And you all thinking that I'm like some radical, it's like, mm, we're not going to have journalism surviving unless we are more, more representational. Right. Um, and we're living through one of those moments right now. Our industry is shrinking and suffering from a credibility issue. I think that if we would have been more representational in the last 50 years, we would have been able to face this particular challenge of a president who um, was an authoritarian, who lied, who was a racist, is a racist, and targeted people of color. I think we would have been in a different place in our country. Yeah. We we survived it. But even as we're recording right now, Donald Trump is still trying to say, well, it really, you know, we're really a third world country. And actually the Justice Department was involved in this whole fraud. And if journalists are reporting that, then we have a problem. Yeah. Because that's not true. Right. And basics is you don't, you know, if you talk to people who have been journalists in authoritarian regimes, you do not repeat the propaganda. Hmm. We did. We did not learn that lesson in the United States of America in the last four years. Yeah. Well, I think that label scares a lot of people to to imagine us as an authoritarian country. That you know, I, I feel like that's handicapped people in a lot of ways. But look at what we've just lived through. Sure. I I mean I I don't relish saying these things, but if I was covering the United States election, if it was happening in Chile, for example. How would we be saying this? Sure, of course. You know, the president-elect is saying that he doesn't want to leave. Yeah. And uh, I'm feeling much better about this now. It was kind of like until the delegates, you know, hand in their their votes and it's actually certified by the Electoral College votes, I'm not prepared. I think every single day more is happening that it's like clear that there is no challenge here. But I was not one of those people who was like, oh, everything's going to be okay. It's yeah. going to be. No, 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 no. Because look where we got. And by the way, 
what, 71 million people saw what Donald Trump did and said, I like it. Yeah. Give us more. I'm good with it. I give yeah. us more. It's crazy. I, I want to ask you just one final question, and that's sort of, you know, zooming out for a minute and, and looking at, at your role in the media and, you know, founding Futuro Media and I guess breaking away from sort of the mainstream, I guess, and just you describe in the book a lot about sort of the terror of being your own boss. But I also wonder about the reward side of it. And just, you know, are you happy that you made that move and, and founded your own media company? And, you know, what what has that looked like for you just personally, professionally? As You know, talk to me about the, those feelings. Well, look, it was born out of a real sense of crisis. It was not happening. Remember, um, I had gone to 60 Minutes and they were like, oh, my God, just come back when one of these old white guys gets sick or dies. And yeah. I was like, ah, what? I mean, I was devastated. I was in the subway crying. I I was terrified. But, oh, my God, a decade later. And, and by the way, not easy, not for the faint of heart, you know, really challenging. But, you know, being a journalist in, is, is challenging, period. Surviving in this business is challenging. Sure. So now, you know, I don't have to deal with a lot of the same issues that other colleagues that I have are dealing with. Um, the conversation about representation in our newsroom is very different than what's happening in many mainstream newsrooms. My nonprofit media company that I created is run now by two African-American women because I'm not the CEO. I, I'm a vice president. I'm launching other things within the company, like investigative work and bigger pro big projects that I wanted to do. So we are that new media company. And our audiences are growing for every single media property that we have, wow. whether it's Latino USA, In the Thick, our which is basically our version of Meet the Press, yep. much cooler, <laughs> Latino Rebels, Latino Rebels Radio, Futuro Studios that is now producing actually in Boston, we're about to drop with WBUR, a big Selena podcast. We're working with KPCC in Los Angeles. We were hired by Netflix. So our company is growing. And so, yeah, no, I don't have the same audience as New York Times, but I'm nipping at their heels. Yeah, I'm absolutely nipping at their heels. And um, I mean, they've they've some of our staffers have gone to work there. And then left. <laughs> so it's a very different playing field. And God, I'm just so happy that I took that risk. Yeah. I'm just so happy that I did because the next 10 years of my career are going to be pretty extraordinary. And I know that for other women who are moving into, you know, an older part of our lives kind of stops for them. Yeah. Not for me. I'm like taking off. I'm like, oh my God, I got this new project and I've got this new project and there's another book coming and there's this and this. So I think that that came from that very risky decision that I made that I think was very immigranty. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't tell my dad I'm going to give up and go on unemployment. I'm just going to figure out how to create this thing on my own. Yeah. Thank God I didn't give up. And that's my message with Once I Was You and with Futuro and the work that I do is it's not easy. Everybody's scared, but go for it because we need you to own your voice and your power. That's great. You you can't see me, but I, I have a big smile on my face right now. That just <laughs> Well, because you did the same thing. Yeah. You were like, okay, I'm just going to jump in and do this. And yeah. that's what we're saying. That is what democracy with a small D looks like. And 
and we need it. And I'm all for it. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm seven months into this and, you know, I don't know where I'm headed, but just, you know, hearing that piece of it and knowing that, as you say, for you, you know, a woman from Mexico, and uh, uh, you know, getting up there in age, all these things that, that could fight against you in the mainstream, you've turned those into assets. And I love that. Absolutely. And I box every morning. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, there we go. Maria Hinojosa. Wow. What a... Uh, what a great conversation. There's a lot that was tough to hear in that interview, but I left feeling inspired. I feel like this message of charting your own course has become a theme on this show. And as Maria said, it's something I'm trying to figure out right now, too. I think we all are. The media business is changing fast. But it was it was fun to talk to her, despite you know how tough some of the topics we touched on were. Maria's book, Once I Was You, is on bookstore shelves now. Maria also has not been able to do book signings, obviously, because of COVID. She's not out doing readings and events and things like that. But if you take a picture of you with your book and tag her on Instagram or Twitter, she's actually been sending out signed stickers that you can add to your book. So go look for her on social media and you can find out all the details there. And don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. Go to heathrasella.com. Enter your email. You'll get a summary of every week's shows right in your inbox every Sunday, as well as additional information and additional reading, all that kind of stuff. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. Thursday's show is going to be a fun one, a little lighter and uh, appropriate for this time of year. I'm talking to Michael James Scott. Michael is a Broadway actor and singer. He's been starring as the genie in Disney's Aladdin on Broadway. Not just on Broadway, though. He has played Broadway, but also the West End and Australia and the North American Touring Company. He has been the genie for a long time. And he actually has a new Christmas album out. It's called A Fierce Christmas. And it is a ray of sunshine that I think we all need right now. So go stream that right now, A Fierce Christmas, Michael James Scott. And I'm going to be talking to him on Thursday's show. So make sure you hit the subscribe button so you'll be one of the first ones to get that in your feed. And I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line. Let me know what you guys are thinking about. Stay safe. Keep washing those hands. Keep those masks on. Do curbside pickup. Stay away from people. Stay safe. 